Welcome to another PI World podcast. This is an audio-only version offered as another way to enjoy our great content. A full video version can be seen on piworld.co.uk, where you can find many more videos of interest to investors. Welcome to the NWF results presentation for our first half year. This is for the period June to November. I'm going to take you through the operating highlights. Chris will then do a financial review, and then I'll come back to talk about our exciting growth strategy. So turning to just a quick overview of the group for those new to us, or those who just need a quick recap, NWF is a specialist distributor of fuel, food and feed across the UK. In our fuel division, we're the third largest oil distributor, and we distribute just under 700 million litres across the country. In food, with nearly a million square foot of warehousing, we're supplying ambient groceries every day to supermarkets and cash and carries across the country. And in our feeds division, we're manufacturing and supplying ruminant animal feed to over 4,000 farmers right up across the country. And the easiest way of remembering this business is we feed one in six dairy cows in Great Britain. I'd now like to turn to the results of the first half. And it's a very strong performance from all divisions. Each of the divisions has actually exceeded expectations and was significantly ahead of prior year. In fact, it's a record first half. The revenue at 542 million, up 35%, is really driven by increased commodity prices. So that's the oil price, which is significantly higher, and also feed commodities, which have increased. The key number that I always talk about is the headline profit vortex, and that's 6.2 million, up 44% on prior year. And you can see the last three years in the comparison chart below. Equally important as profit is cash. And you can see at the end of the half year, we were cash positive to the tune of 1.2 million. And again, if you look at the history, you can really see the cash generative capability of the NWF group. And finally on this slide, as always, we've maintained the interim dividend at a penny. In the last 10 years, we've increased the total dividend by around about 5% each year. Last year's dividend was 7.5 pence in total. And again, analysts would expect that to increase by around 5% for the full year. But then move on to the operating highlights and starting with fuels. Here it's all been about marginal gains. A strong performance outperforming our expectation on the back of higher margins offsetting lower volumes. The prior comparative of 3.6 million was flattered by the panic buying we had around the fuel retail shortages last autumn. What we have seen in the first half year is some softer demand for heating oil. That's been down some 20% on prior year. The main cause of that is the pretty mild warm conditions we had over the autumn. We're also conscious of the cost of living crisis and the higher price of oil in the marketplace. Uh, oil prices remain volatile. Uh, they're $85 today. They've moved between $124 and $83 over the period in question. And the thing that hasn't really been reported much in the press is there've been some real challenges around distribution of oil. There've been shortages, particularly around diesel and also heating oil. So in our depot down in Yeovil in December, we're actually rationing customers to 500 litres to ensure we're able to supply them. Now in NWF, actually we've got national supply agreements from all terminals and refineries across the country, and that's enabled us to trunk fuel across the country to make sure we can supply and meet our customers' needs. And finally, really pleased post-period end to announce the acquisition of Sweet Fuels in December 22 for 10 million pounds. And Chris is gonna talk more about this exciting acquisition later. 
Then move on to food, really strong performance here. You can see profits up to 2.1 million. And this is really continuing the improvements in momentum that we've seen in previous reporting periods. We've actually had an increase in outbound volume up some 6% on prior year. And that's because ambient grocery demand is strong. Um, and also our customers' products and services are demanded across the country. So what we've got is an improvement in efficiency in distribution and backloads, and also improvements in efficiency in the warehouse. Please report that we've got our full complement of staff, both in the warehouses and drivers. And in point of fact, we actually have a waiting list for drivers looking to join our program today. We've had a successful training program of training people from what we call warehouse to wheels, where people operating forklifts in our warehouses have been trained how to drive HGVs and then have joined our transport team. The picture on the right-hand side is our crew warehouse. And again, pleased to report that that investment that we made two years ago is outperforming the case that we set down at the time. There's also an exciting pipeline of new customers looking to join our business. Kruger, one of our existing customers, has awarded us an additional 4,000 pallet spaces, which is starting to come in right now. So you can see overall 122,000 pallets stored, and that's out of a total capacity of 135,000, so a good level of utilization. And then thirdly, talking about feeds, here we've had a really strong recovery. You can see profits up to 2.1 million in the first half. Here we've had very good market conditions. Remember, principally 70% of our volume goes to dairy farmers, and critically, the milk price has been at record levels. The end of November, the average price in the UK was over 51 pence. What that's meant is farmers have been really focused on nutrition, and we're providing nutrition advice, to optimize the yield of their dairy cows and use the nutritional advice that our team can provide. So we've also had effective management of commodity prices, and those continuing to be volatile. There's different news coming out in Ukraine. There's clearly the global economic outlook. And also there are excess commodities coming from the poultry sector, a sector we're not supplying, but that has been impacted by disease. It's also the fourth year of the NWF Academy. So the fourth cohort is now going into that training program. And you can see our volumes are just a tad lower than prior year, slightly ahead of market conditions. I'll now hand over to Chris, who will take us through a financial review. Thanks, Richard, and good morning, everyone. I'll now talk you through the strong financial results for the first half, starting, as always, with the income statement. So revenue increased by 139 million. As Richard's already referenced, that's mainly uh, the pass-through cost of higher commodities, both at the higher oil price and feed commodities. But importantly, the increase in revenue that's come from higher selling prices and mix offsets lower volumes. And we see the benefit of that in our headline operating profit, which increased to 6.8 million versus 4.7 million in the prior year, with the biggest increase in feeds, but also an increase in food. In fuels, headline operating profit dropped back a little to 2.6 million, but this still represents 0.9 pence per litre, which is above the historical norm for the half year of about half a penny per litre. And you can see that in the table at the bottom of the chart. There's been no exceptional items in the period. Last year was an impairment charge. If we then move on to the bottom half of the income statement, you'll see that finance costs are a little bit higher in the period. That's because bank interest has seen higher interest rates, which 
more than offset the lower average net debt that we had across the period. And the IFRS 16 interest was slightly higher as a result of an increase in fleet and new leases coming on at a slightly higher interest rate. Our tax rate is 21.9% and at the moment we'd expect that to be our rate for the year. As usual, our interim dividend is one penny per share and clearly at this level of profitability that's extremely well covered. Moving on to the balance sheet, we've had limited change in fixed assets as depreciation has exceeded capex. The main movement on the balance sheet has really been around working capital and there we've seen about an 8 million increase. And we can sort of split that in two. So half of that's been the result of higher commodity costs and feeds. Um, that's a longer term thing. It'll obviously move up or down depending on the uh, movement in commodity costs. But we've also had a very short term working capital outflow, which reflects the supply constraints in fuels. So in November, we had to uh, pay a supplier about £4 million early in order to ensure supply. That short term outflow reversed in December and we don't expect to see that again. I'll come back to pension and net debt on a later slide, uh, but a couple of other things to pull out from the balance sheet. So firstly, we continue to have very strong asset underpinning with total assets of 227 million and net assets of 70 million. And our return on capital employed has been really strong over the last 12 months at 28.8%. And it's really good to see all divisions recording a double-digit return on capital employed, particularly feeds, which I've been promising will do this since I joined the group nearly six years ago. So really good to see that. Moving on to the pension. Uh, clearly, the autumn was a very interesting time for pension schemes following the mini budget. And we are invested in, in LDI as part of our investment strategy. Positively, I can confirm that it didn't cause us an issue. So the aftermath of the mini budget was successfully managed within the scheme. There was no cash call on the group. And as a result, what you see is that our hedging strategy has effectively worked. So as interest rates have gone up, our liabilities have come down, but our assets have come down in a corresponding manner. So therefore, we see a slight increase in deficit over the period from 9.3 million to 10.5 million. Our next triannual valuation is to the 31st of December 2022, so that work will take place across the summer. Um, historically, our accounting deficit has been very similar to our formal valuation, so that would be our best guess at the moment of where the, the formal valuation will come out. Uh, until then, we will continue to have recovery periods of 2.3 million per annum, and those grow in line with dividends. At that level, and given our financial firepower, it's not causing any constraints on group development. Moving on to cash flow, key thing to pull out here is really that profitability flowing through, offset by the working capital factors that I've talked about. So as a result, we have a small outflow in the period. Had we not had that 4 million short-term working capital outflow in fuels, then we'd have had a small inflow. And our cash generation is best shown on the next slide. If you look at the chart on the right-hand side, then our rolling 12-month cash generation before development expenditure was 8.4 million. And if we hadn't had that short-term fuels working capital outflow, it would have been over 12 million. In terms of our banking facilities, we're in the process of refinancing those at the moment as planned as they mature in October 2023. 
Until that concludes, we continue to have 65 million of facilities with NatWest, the bulk of which is in the form of an invoice discounting line of 50 million, which is charged at 1.25% over base rate. Both our invoice discounting line and our 10 million uh, RCF facility can be used for M&A activity, and therefore we have significant firepower for both M&A and other development expenditure. So in summary, a really strong set of results sets us up really well for the second half, and I'll now hand back to Richard to talk about our strategy. Okay, thank you, Chris. Um, and positively, what we have with NWF is a really clear development strategy, and there are probably more development opportunities today than there have been for many years. And just as a recap, NWF is a very cash-generative business, and we operate in large, stable markets. So that gives us the positive position of the resilience that we demonstrate as a group, but it also says if we want to continue to grow, we need to invest in organic growth, in CapEx, and also in M&A. And what we've got is a very strong track record in terms of developing total shareholder return. So that's what we're looking to continue to do. In fuels, the key opportunity is to consolidate what is a highly fragmented market, and I'll give you a bit more detail on that in a moment. And in food, we're winning new customers and have this exciting pipeline of new business that wants to come into our, our warehouse. Um, if we don't expand the business, we'll actually be in overflow position by the summer, which really demonstrates the capability of the business to win new customers. So there's an opportunity to target step change expansion very much along the lines of the crew warehouse to expanded a couple of years back. And so what we're looking to do is expand our warehouse infrastructure, but also link that to customer contracts, and that can give us a step change improvement in business, probably in the Northwest in the first instance, because we have a number of customers locally who'd like to come and join us. So notwithstanding that, we're always looking to optimize the customer mix and utilize our value-added niche businesses. So this includes a repacking operation, our e-fulfillment, and also our pallet line network. And in feeds, we are, we are feeding one of six dairy cows in Britain, working with over 4,000 farmers. But we've got an excellent operating platform. So we've got a mill up in Cumbria, here in Cheshire, and also down in the southwest. And that enables us to supply dairy farmers up and down the country. So we're looking to leverage that operating capability. We're continuing to invest in the NDF Academy, with our fourth cohort joining us. And also there's a further opportunity to increase the range of products and services that we're supplying to our farming customer base across the country. Then move on to the fuels market in a little bit more detail. And a number of you have seen this before, the pie chart on the right hand side. So what we've detailed there are the top 10 players in the market. And you can see us NWF with that little red slice that you can see. So in spite of doing nearly 700 million litres, we've only got a 2% market share and we're the third largest player. So clearly there are a top 10 that we've detailed there, all of whom we'll be having conversations with because there is an opportunity to consolidate this market. But also we're talking to the 150 smaller players in that three quarters of the pie, which is in the gray area. And that's where we've made a number of acquisitions in the last few years and continue to operate. So there is clearly an opportunity to consolidate this market. In terms of our demand, volume is pretty resilient. Over 30% of our volume is utilized in heating applications, and less than 5% is actually sold to retail garages. The key market for us is really this domestic base. 
So we've got over 90,000 domestic customers across the country from our 26 fuel depots, and that's out of 1.4 million homes that use oil as their source of heating. And clearly the cost of living crisis is impacting all homes, but it's positive that oil is the lowest cost form of home heating. Even with the cap on gas, it's still 11% lower than the cost of natural gas for a household. So it's certainly something that our customers are able to benefit through these tough times. And the way that customers operate is they purchase from local fuel depots who provide local service to them, and that's how we operate. Now clearly in the longer term, there'll be an energy transition as we move away from fossil fuel. And think of us as supplying energy to the rural consumers and the rural community. And a key opportunity here is something I've talked about before, which is HVO, and HVO 100, which is hydro-treated vegetable oil. And this has 80% less emissions than a conventional kerosene, which is heating oil. There have been significant trials across the country using this in domestic boilers, and the boilers have worked perfectly. All you need to do is adjust the pressure through the nozzle very slightly, a very low-cost adjustment, and then it works perfectly. And George Eustace actually tabled in the House of Commons this month a motion that says that the duty on HVO should be put to the same as heating oil and therefore removed. Uh, that was supported across the House of Commons. It will take time for that to go into legislation, but certainly there is support to remove the duty, which would mean the cost of HVO 100 will be similar to heating oil, and therefore the rural community, including ourselves, can use, heat, use HVO as a source of home heating. We're actually using it on our vehicles that operate on the Wardle site, that's our main operating site, and also from our Broadlands fuel business, which is out of Great Yarmouth, supplying consumers across Norfolk and East Anglia. Now just move on to acquisitions and let Chris take you through uh, the proven acquisition process and what's happening currently. Thanks, Richard. So this is very consistent with prior periods. Uh, so we continue to look for UK oil distribution businesses. And we have a significant pipeline that we're working through of both larger and smaller transactions. As we've discussed before, we've got a, uh, an established method for valuing businesses. And as a reminder, we're looking to pay six times the sustainable EBIT that NWF will be able to make from that business. We're finding discussing what the sustainable EBIT is is a little bit more challenging at the moment, as most of our acquisition targets have performed well over the last couple of years. Uh, but once we've agreed a deal, then we have a standard due diligence and legal process, and which we continue to refine and improve every time we do a transaction. Then once we've bought the business, we have a well-trodden uh, path for integrating that business. So if we then look at the sweet fuels deal um, specifically, if you excuse the pun, that's very much a sweet spot deal for us. It was an approach from a corporate finance advisor who was acting for the sweet family. They were looking to retire and go on and do other things. It's a business that has a very strong domestic customer base and brand in the area. So it does about 20 million litres in the Cotswolds. It's a, an affluent area. And in FY21, the business uh, recorded profits of 1.3 million EBITDA, and it's got net assets of 2.8 million. We bought that business on the 21st of December. Uh, an NWF depot manager is in there running the business and we're already well progressed with the systems integration. So that will be on the NWF financial systems in the next few weeks. So pleased to report that transaction is um, performing uh, very well so far under NWF ownership. 
Okay, thank you, Chris. Just now I want to move on to um, how we're getting on with delivering our ESG framework. What we've got is very much embedded in the business now are measures and targets for reporting across all the ESG parameters that we've got in the business. There's a steering committee that meets each month. Chris chairs and I'm attending, along with each of the managing directors of the business, to really bring ESG to life across the group. In our food division, we're actually applying for B Corp certification. This is quite a tough uh, level of certification, and if we achieve it, we'll be one of the first distributors in the UK to get this accreditation. It's actually winning us customers because a number of our food customers, ethical customers, are also looking for B Corp certification themselves, and therefore this is a way of winning business on the back of driving our ESG agenda. And also, please report that preparations for our first full UK CFD disclosure are on track, and that will be reported for our year ending May 2023. Well, on this slide, we're talking about the NDWF proposition, the why pick us slide, the investment case. And what we've got is a strong management team with detailed knowledge and experience of the markets in which we operate. We've got a really clear growth strategy, which we continue to reiterate. We've also got very strong asset backing. Our total assets of 228 million allow Chris and I to sleep at nights, but also give us that very cost-effective source of funding that we talked about earlier. We've focused on return on capital and clearly 29% return on capital is outstanding. We also convert our profit into cash, and as a consequence of that, are able to maintain a progressive dividend policy and deliver total shareholder returns. So finally, in summary, it's a very strong result, and we're also delivering on strategy. It's clearly a record ahead of expectations and ahead of prior year, and again demonstrates that NWF performs really well and is very resilient, whatever the market conditions. There's also good momentum. We're actively involved in a number of discussions on additional fuel acquisitions. In food, as I talked about earlier, we're looking to expand the business with new customers coming on board. And in feeds, we're managing farmers' nutrition through the key winter months that we're experiencing, and that's going well. So in summary, we've got confidence in the future development opportunities and the outlook for the group. Thank you very much. And we've got a question from Adrian Kearsey from Panama. Good morning. Um, congratulations on an impressive first half. Um, a few questions for me, if I may. Um, talk about the sort of expansion of your um, position within food. Um, you know, the crew investment has proven a huge success. Before you before you push the button on crew, you built up a um, a body of of, of so sort of excess demand almost from 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 clients um so that therefore when you when you did push the button it was at a very low risk uh very low risk strategy what sort of level of of new business or pent up demand would you require before you push the button and sort of linked to that is is if you were going to have a third warehouse would it be similar to the crew uh the, the, the crew location okay thanks Adrian. in terms of Building up, yeah, the perfect thing is, as you open a new warehouse, you want customers that will come in and fill that warehouse. Uh, when we opened the crew facility, uh, things were a bit tight. We probably had more customers than we required, so we, we got people in very quickly. I think in, in, in outline terms, what we'd look to have is something like 10,000 pallets of business to move into a warehouse straight away. That will enable it to bed down. But I think critically, what we'd need to see is that we have the capability to fill 90% of that space within a 12-month period. So that would be contracts that we need to have sight of 
with customers or potential customers that would give us that confidence to make that move. Crew itself, 250, 240,000 square feet, uh, delivers 35,000 pallet spaces. Uh, that's a perfect size because once you're over 30,000 pallet spaces, the warehouse is what we call self-consolidates and therefore you can create full loads from that environment. So I think the minimum size we'd look for would be about 30,000 pallet spaces. And in terms of locations, we've got customers already that would be operating effectively from the northwest. So I'd say the northwest would be the most likely place that we'd look to expand into in the first instance. Okay. Um, may I ask a, a question on, on fuels, if, if, if I may? Um, or I suppose two, two questions. One, have you seen anybody enter the market in terms of competing M&A um, acquirers? Um, then also in terms of what's the optimum range for a depot uh, in terms of the area it covers uh, for, for selling into? Because obviously if you go too far, um, it becomes less efficient. Uh, that's, that's correct. So uh, just to deal with the first question, um, we've not seen um, any significant entrance into people competing to buy assets. Uh, what we tend to find is if there is competition for an asset, it will be um, the larger regional players in the specific region uh, were looking to acquire something. So we, we have had competition on deals and we have occasionally been outbid on things. Uh, but it tends to be by the business next door protecting their own territory. Um, in terms of the sort of optimum um, depot range, uh, we tend to think about a, a radius of about 30 miles. I mean, clearly that depends on the locality and the transport infrastructure. But you're right, if, if the tankers have to travel too far, then the cost of actually delivering the product is eating too much into the, uh, into the profit we make from actually selling it. And we'll go to Andrew Ford at Peel Hunt. Morning, Richard. Morning, Chris. Um, well done um, again on a really uh, strong start to the year. A couple of questions uh, from me. Uh, firstly, in fuels, obviously, we saw a bit of um, lower volumes in the run into Christmas um, because of you know, milder weather, weather and maybe um, some people with an eye on the cost of living um, concerns coming through. How, in demand over the last couple of months, has there been any uh, indications as to um, sort of normalisation of, of of that, that volume? Um, or, or yeah, what, what are you seeing just in general um, demand over the last couple of months? Um, next on food, sort of following on uh, maybe from the the, the, the last uh, question, um, thinking about the current footprint, um, how how close do you think you are to being? I guess perfectly optimized from a margin perspective. Obviously, there was there was quite a nice uplift this year. Um, so on the current footprint, do you think that could go further? Um, and then with the addition of the new site, where where would you see that margin possibly settling? Um, and then lastly, on on feed, um, I know uh, dairy's been particularly strong this year. We've gone to fifty p per liter for for milk, and maybe it might be coming back to the forties. What what benchmark price do you look at? that really sort of drives that strong uptake on the on the value-added feed. Thanks. Okay, thanks. So um, just running through those, in terms of fuel demand, the, yes, the 20% reduction in heating oil was the period uh, June to November. Uh, and from what we can see, that was experienced across the market. The thing that's hard for us to identify is how much is because of the warm weather, how much is the cost of living crisis, and how much is you know, the fact that oil is, is a higher price than it was a year ago. Uh, what we saw in December, 
uh, was demand was much more normal. So clearly we had a couple of, couple of weeks of very cold weather um, and usage will have increased. But most consumers had actually placed their order uh, for Christmas before that really cold weather had bitten. And the same in January. I think December and January looked like more normal months, um, not outstanding demand, but normal winter months. And I think the key for all consumers is, you know, in the autumn and in the spring, you can probably turn the heating off. When it gets cold, the heating is on and you're using it. And I think the positive for our customers is the cost of oil is still the lowest uh, cost of home heating. Um, in terms of food and, and the footprint, um, I think, yes, the margins have improved and there will be um, an optimum level of this. Um, and I think the easiest way of looking at it when we work with our team in, in food is if you get to that sort of 5% return on sales, um, that's a really strong performance. Um, and we can't necessarily see ourselves going much above that, but that still gives us an opportunity to improve from where we currently are. Um, and the way we can improve that return is all about um, deploying more of our added value services to customers' business um, and also customers with a faster stock turn. So therefore, they can use you know, more distribution and we can get more backloads. But I think that 5% is probably a sweet spot that we're looking to achieve in the longer term in the business. Uh, and the third question on, on, on dairy volume, you know, 50 pence is an outstanding price uh, for milk. Um, a positive there is that our dairy farming customers are not looking to massively expand. A few years ago when the price was high, most farms I went on to were looking to expand the herd, put in a new parlour and expand the sheds. Uh, they're not doing that today, uh, which gives us confidence of the long-term sustainability of this market. In part, it's that it's difficult to import cattle from Europe, uh, but it means that therefore we won't have the sort of boom and bust that we saw in previous times. Um, I think for us, as long as the milk price is ahead of 40 pence a litre, uh, that's a good level to support the current cost base that UK farming is enjoying. So I think that's a reasonable balance for us. And we'll go to Anne-Margaret Crow at Edison. Morning and uh, congratulations on a great set of results. Got a couple of questions um, on the feed side. Um, I'm wondering um, if you thought there was going to be any impact um, from the more detailed information about the UK farming policy, because they actually put out quite a bit of detail last week. Um, and looking at it, it seemed to be mainly arable farmers, but I was just wondering if there was going to be um, any impact on what you did. Um, and then actually asking for a bit of clarity on your comment on um, demand for poultry feed, because obviously you know, that has gone down. You listen to what four farmers have, have been saying, it has impacted them. So wondering if there was, you know, perhaps an indirect impact if four farmers were feeling they, you know, perhaps had to make volumes up in dairy in, in some way and they were being a bit more com competitive in pricing or something like that. So those were the two areas um, I'd like to explore. Okay, thank, thank you. So firstly, um, the challenging one of UK um, agricultural policy and, and the whole area of subsidies. Um, so this is a sort of an area which has been frankly a bit confusing and continues to be confusing um, for our customers and ourselves. So clearly in England we're looking to move to more environmental measures to subsidise and support farmers. Interestingly that's not the case in Scotland. Uh, in Scotland our customers will still uh, retain a subsidy based on the land that they have. That's the, the old format. So there is a bit of um, difference between the country in which you're operating. Um, I think what we're looking for 
um, as a company but as a, a UK agriculture is for more clarity on here as to how it will impact um, particularly our, our customers and dairy farmers because farmers are keen to improve their environmental footprint but they need to understand how that's going to be measured, monitored and rewarded. Um, so I think we're a little unclear. I think the key for us is we think in the longer term subsidies will reduce um, and also the critical thing with a milk price of 50 pence actually the subsidy isn't so critical for our dairy farming customers as it used to be. You know, that isn't the thing that makes or breaks their year, um, but I think we're just looking for clarity and I think it will take some time uh, for this to become more clear. Uh, the second question you ask in terms of uh, poultry feed and, and the impact of avian bird flu, the data that we see, and remember we're not in the poultry sector directly, is that demand for poultry feed is down some 10% on prior year, largely as a consequence of disease. Um, so that has had an impact on the commodity prices. So particularly grain prices have fallen as those commodities have become available because the poultry feed producers, the monogastric producers, haven't right. required the feed. Okay. Um, in terms of has there therefore been more competition, um, the answer is I don't think there has because typically the geography for where the monogastric feed mills are isn't in the right place. So they tend to be right over on the east of the country where the you know, the pig and poultry um, groups are, and, and the ruminant mills on the west-hand side tend to be pretty full, full and the mm. costs of transport tend to prohibit them substituting feed in one mill for another. So we haven't seen any increase in competition. The bigger impact, to say, has been on commodity prices and particularly around grain. Andrew Ford from Peel Hunt, do you have another question? The, so Chris, I know we've uh, we sort of we've spoken before about the the, the profit on uh, pence uh, on fuel on pence per litre. Um, it, it used to obviously always be that one p, and now it's you know I think we said it's going to one point four. Um, and you said um, some of that uh, is just the the, the 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 industry just taking a bit more of what it what it you know should should deserve. How do you see that changing the industry? And I know that's quite quite a broad question, but whether it be further investment in uh, supply chain contingency or if it is just going to be a bit more you know profit um, for, for, for the for the um, for, for the depots and then maybe how that uh, in, you know, might, might slow down things like the acquisition pipeline and people try and retain those profits for, the, for themselves um, or, or is most of that going to be absorbed by just the broad you know base cost inflation we're seeing so sort of covering wages etc um, uh, that's quite a, a broad question but um, hopefully it makes a bit of sense. Yes, no, so I think some of it will um, will be absorbed by the increasing cost base, however uh, I think there's some on top that won't be. In terms of how that changes the M&A environment, I don't think it will really um, and the reason for that is the main driver of um, people looking to sell their businesses are that they are at retirement age. So if you look at Sweet Fuels, a good example, Adrian Sweet had founded that business and was getting to the point in life where he didn't want to do that anymore and has other things he's, he is interested in. So the fact that over the last couple of years he's made more money didn't make him want to stay and continue running the business. It gave him a good platform for selling the business. Um, but ultimately he still wants to go off and do other things. So I, I don't think it will change um, the level of people who are interested in selling the business. And in fact, the fact that the supply issues 
etc. in the market that are making it harder for small businesses to operate, I think if anything will drive more people to want to think about exiting. And in terms of just general, I don't know if there is more investment uh, required in distribution networks or storage facilities, etc. I know there's been quite a lot of um, volatility of supply, which has fed through to price over the last couple of years. It, it, will that extra profit go towards that potentially, you know, talking about the industry as a whole? or? Um, where uh, you guess, can yeah, see right. people invest in, um, in the past has been in, in new fleet. Right. Um, so putting extra tankers on. We haven't seen that. Um, in part, that's because it's quite hard to, to secure new tankers because of the supply chain issues. Um, so people are replenishing their fleets and updating it, but we've not, you know, we don't think there's been an actual increase in the size of fleet. And that reflects the fact that the volumes haven't increased. So, so again, I don't think I think we may see it invest in newer assets, but I don't think it'll be in more assets, and therefore that shouldn't start to chip away at margins. And we have a final question again on oil profits from Simon Young, who asks: Given the changes in profit per liter over the last five years, how do you think about the longer-term profits per liter in the oil distribution business? Shall I take that one? Yep. So, so I think there has been a, a sort of permanent shift that's moved that penny up to sort of 1.4 pence per litre. Um, clearly, if we continue to be in an inflationary environment for a period in time, then that, that 1.4 pence per litre needs to increase in, at least in line with inflation to cover inflationary cost increases. So that's what I think we'll see. I think we'll see the market continuing to, to push that up to try and recover inflationary cost pressures. Thank you very much. And that's the end of questions. Richard, do you have any closing remarks? I think the only thing I'd like to add is um, you've heard a good presentation today, but I think the key is that NWF is very resilient and robust. But what we're also is very ambitious to further develop the group. And we've got a successful track record and we're looking to build on that in the coming months and years. PI World videos and podcasts are for general information and interest. They do not constitute any kind of recommendation or inducement to buy shares of any company. PI World is not offering any kind of financial advice and nothing in our material should be taken as such.